Our sermon this morning is going to be from Genesis chapter 25. So turn back in your Bible with me. The book of Genesis chapter 25. Genesis has 50 chapters. As uh, If you thumb through, you'll see that. Uh, if you're visiting us this morning, the bad news is uh, we're only halfway. We're only halfway there. But uh, the good news, uh, the good news is that we're halfway there, right? So we're we're making some progress. Genesis chapter uh, 25, and we're going to read there this morning, verses 1 through 18. There's also a sermon notes page uh, in the bulletin if you would like to take notes. And there's also a little notes uh, page for kids that was on the table outside on the way in this morning. Just to encourage our kids to uh, to use that and uh, answer those questions. So Genesis 25, verses 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were, uh, were Asherim, Letushim, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abidah, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. And was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. That was back in chapter 23. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Be'er Lahai Roi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaiot, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Ad-Be'il, Ib-Sam, Mishma, Duma, Ma-Sa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedamah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And all of God's people say, Amen. Paul tells us that all things uh, will come to an end, yet faith, hope, and love abide, remain. Uh, Abraham Abraham has been called uh, by the apostle as well, the man of faith. He is the father of the faithful. And so he tells us, does Paul in Romans chapter 4, that we are to walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. 
As his life comes to an end here this morning in Genesis chapter 25, uh, let us continue, let us continue in faith until the end of our lives as well as we see here uh, with Father Abraham. And so we turn again to Genesis and we come to chapter 25, the middle of uh, the book, uh, the end of the story of Father Abraham. And you notice there on the outline there, as we think about the end of his pilgrimage here, his pilgrimage on this earth, uh, in this life, I want you to see there uh, three things from chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. Uh, The first thing here is that we find one last expression of faith, one last expression of Abraham's faith in verses 1 through 6. Uh, Notice again there, verse number 1, we're told that he took another wife. Uh, And then we learn that she bore Abraham six sons. Now, naturally, we might read this, we probably do read this, in a, in a chronological way and think that these uh, verses, what they're saying, speak of uh, what happened after his wife Sarah died. We saw that last Sunday, chapter number 24. So we might think that after she died, he remarried uh, and then had six more sons. Uh, let me explain to you what's happening in this text and why uh, what we see here is another expression of Abraham's faith. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 are not chronological. A lot of times in the Old Testament narratives, we might read them chronologically because that's how we as as Western readers read books. We read them from front to back, from beginning to end, and they typically follow a chronological pattern. Uh, A lot of times in Old Testament narrative, things are dyschronologized, that is, they are ordered in a certain way for a certain reason, uh, for theological reasons, not chronological reasons. And the Gospels do the same thing. Jesus' miracles and his works and his sayings, they're not, they're not from beginning to end. They are, they are uh, uh, organized in a, in a way that the writer sees fit to pursue his, uh, his purpose. And so these verses here are not chronological. Why? Well, that verb that we read where it says Abraham took another wife uh, can also uh, be translated had taken. Had taken another wife there, verse 1, referring to a previous event. Uh, Secondly, Keturah is called his concubine in verse 6, as well as uh, later on in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. So we're told here that he had taken another wife. Uh, She's also called there, verse 6, as well as 1 Chronicles 1, uh, a concubine. Third, Abraham was roughly 140 years old when Isaac married Rebekah, last uh, chapter, chapter 24. and, 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 and realizing their, these, these great lengths of, of, his, uh, of, of their ages, uh, think about it like this. If, if being 100 years old when Isaac was born was a miraculous event, as we saw, how much more miraculous would six more sons be after being 140 years old? This would make Zimram... Uh, Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua more miraculous than the birth of Isaac. What the story is trying to tell us is that while Abraham was married to Sarah, he had at least two concubines. We've seen the first already, Hagar, chapter 16, uh, and now Keturah. And this is where his final or his last expression of faith is found, at least according to this narrative. Again, the way that the, the author, Moses, writes it and, and organizes his material to show us the faith, to highlight the faith at the end of his life of Abraham. We read there in verses 5 and 6 that he gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Hagar, for example, 
uh, and here as well, Keturah, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the, to the east country. Now, we've got to put our minds, our, our, our Genesis hats back on and go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. And remember a couple of things that we learned there uh, already. When, when the Lord sent Adam and Eve out of the garden in Eden, which direction did he send them? East. And when, when uh, uh, Cain kills Abel, and then God comes in judgment upon Cain, he puts a mark on him. Where does he go? He wanders east of Eden, doesn't he? And we made the big point that in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, the, the direction of going eastward in those contexts meant to go away from God, so metaphorically speaking. To go away from the presence of the Lord was to go east. Now, here then, Abraham sends his concubines and all of his other sons, he sends them east. Away from Isaac, away from the promised lands, away from him. Why? To highlight that he believes with full confidence that Isaac was the son of of promise. Isaac was the one that God had given him promises way back at the beginning. All the way in Genesis chapter 12 when he called him. He sent away his other sons. He did this in faith because he believed what God was doing. And so the narrative, notice there, begins with a genealogy, then it ends with a genealogy. Uh, These genealogies of the sons of Abraham's concubines, his other wives, is meant to highlight that, yes, God blessed them, and yes, he gave them gifts, but it was the line of Abraham through Isaac that the promises of the Lord came true. And we'll come to that in just a moment. So he gives everything he has to Isaac because he believes, because he has faith, because he trusts the Lord's promise. He also gives other gifts. He also gives other gifts uh, to his sons, uh, presumably daughters, his concubines, his other wives, uh, out of generosity, but he believes the promise. Even at the end, notice he's clinging on. He's clinging on to that promise. As Charles Wesley once said one of his hymns, he says, Oh, for a faith like his, like Abraham's, that we, uh, the brightest example may pursue, May gladly give up all to thee, that is the Lord, to whom our more than all is due. He dies in faith, and he exhibits that by blessing his son Isaac with everything he has, and even by sending his other sons away, because it's through Isaac alone. And so he believes. And may we then, as that hymn writer says, as the Apostle Paul says, let us follow in the faith of the footsteps of Father Abraham, trusting in him, believing in his promises to us. Notice, secondly, that we have here one last expression of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Uh, Kids, let me me put it like this. If If you have a lamp at home, and it's not plugged in, and you turn on the lamp or you turn on the switch on the wall, what's going to happen to the light bulb in the lamp? 
if you have a lamp, the light bulb plugged in, but it's not, the, 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 the plug isn't in the wall, you turn the light on, what's going to happen? Nothing is going to happen, right? You hear a little click, you might just turn the, the thing on and off, Dad, Mom, what's, what's up? What's going on? How come the light's not working? Why isn't it working? I mean, it has a light bulb on it, doesn't it? And I thought if you turn the switch, the light bulb turns on. I thought if you flick the light switch on the wall, up and down, I thought the light went on and off. What does the light bulb need? It needs electricity, doesn't it? So that plug, that light bulb, is no good without being plugged into the wall to have electricity to allow it to enlighten a room. In other words, Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith is only as good as the person, the thing that the faith is put into. Like a plug into a wall. A plug is no good without electricity, right, coming through that wall. And so Abraham's faith is only as good as the one that it's placed in. And so we think about Abraham's faith here, and we want to follow his faith, being people of faith, trusting in God's promises every single step of our lives and our earthly pilgrimage. But our faith always, and Abraham's faith, is always meant to enlighten the faithfulness of the Lord. The Lord's promised Abraham many things throughout our story. I'll just read a couple of those great promises. Uh, remember back in chapter 17, he, he promised that Abraham, uh, uh, that the Lord would uh, multiply Abraham greatly. He would multiply Abraham greatly. He promised again in chapter 17 that Abraham would be the father of a multitude of nations. That he would make Abraham exceedingly fruitful. He also promised way back when as well. He promised one of Abraham's wives, concubines, Hagar. He promised her concerning her son, Ishmael, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. More specifically, the Lord later on spoke of Ishmael, saying, Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes. How many sons are mentioned in that second genealogy? If you look down at verse 12 through 18, how many sons are mentioned there from Ishmael? Twelve. What did God promise? Twelve princes. What did God give? He gave him twelve sons. And so even here in the blessing of sons from Ishmael uh, and also from his wife, concubine Keturah, we see the promise of God being expressed, the faithfulness of God to his promises. And Abraham has already seen the beginning of the Lord's promises in his son Isaac, his sons now from Keturah, uh, his sons, uh, grandsons, that is, from his son Ishmael. Because Abraham has lived 35 more years since the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, he also lived to see his grandsons, Jacob and Esau, into their teen years, if we read those genealogies. And so in the, the way that Moses writes the story there, he dies, uh, Moses, uh, Abraham dies there in verse 8, but he surrounds it in the narrative of genealogies, beginning and end. The genealogy from Keturah, the genealogy from Ishmael. 
The fact that he does that, the reason for doing that is to show us that the author of Genesis wanted his readers to grasp this one overwhelming truth about the Lord. He's faithful and true to everything he said. To all that he says, he's faithful and he is true. At the end of his life, through all the ups and downs, through thick and thin, through trust and through doubt, God, the Lord, has been faithful. In fact, if you go over in your Bible to Exodus chapter 34, Exodus 34, this is where Moses wants to see the glory of God. God has said because of the Israelites building a golden calf and worshiping it as if it was the Lord, he said he's going he's to wipe out the Israelites and start over just with Moses. And Moses says, Lord, you promised. You promised us. And, and Lord, show the glory of God. If you don't go up with us from this land, we will perish. We're nothing. It's not, it, we, we, we can't survive out here in the wilderness. And, and so the Lord says, I will go. I will go with you. And he says, show, us, show me your glory, Lord, so that I would know that you're going with us. Now, of course, God says, you can't see my glory and live. You can't see my face and live. But I'm going to put you in this little crag or this cleft of a rock. And I'm going to pass by and you'll, you'll see my glory. Now, what's interesting is, yes, he sees, uh, he sees the glory of God pass by. And it's described there as the backside of God. He sees walking past, as it were. But notice in Exodus 34 at verse 6, when the Lord passes by to show the glory of God, notice what God does. God preaches. He proclaims. He proclaims his name, notice, the Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice that when the Lord wants to show his glory, he proclaims what he's like. What is God like according to God himself? He is a God who is full and abundant in steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. That means that what God says, I've said this before and I'll say it again, what God says he's going to do, he does it. That means that God is the God not only who makes promises, but he also keeps those promises. That's what it means that he's the Lord. Abundance in steadfast love and faithfulness to the end. And that's what Moses wants us to see here. Even before Moses hears that. It's shown to us in the life of Father Abraham. This one overwhelming truth. The Lord is faithful and true. He's so reliable, brothers and sisters. He's so reliable. The Israelites were... were, uh, These stories were passed down, of course, in uh, the generations orally by stories, but eventually they're written down by Moses as they are out in the wilderness to encourage them that God is faithful. Just as you are here in a pilgrimage, God was telling the Israelites, so too our father Abraham was a pilgrim in this world, and I was faithful to him. And if I was faithful to him, I'll be faithful to you. Is God the same yesterday, today, and forever, brothers and sisters? Is the, is the same God our God? If he's faithful to Abraham, he's faithful to Moses, is he faithful to us? He demonstrates that in 
in the history, in the life of Father Abraham that, that we've been reading, that he would bring to fulfillment all of his promises from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end. He's brought them all to fulfillment. He demonstrates his, to us his faithfulness. To us in the fullness of times. That all of his promises to our ancient forefathers and foremothers have all come true. When God promised to the prophet in, in many generations after this story, he promised that a Savior was coming who would be born of a virgin. Did, did, did that come true? When he promised that that son, that that Savior, that that Messiah was going to be born in a, in a small town of Bethlehem, did that come true? When the prophet spoke of a servant of God who was going to come and he would be uh, crushed for our iniquities. He would be bruised for our sins. Did that come true? When he promised that he would not leave that son, his son, to perish, to decay in the grave, but that he would raise him up. Is Jesus Christ alive, loved ones? He demonstrates to us his faithfulness in giving us his son. His virgin birth, his death, his resurrection to show to us, to demonstrate to us his promises, to show to us that he accepts the offering of Jesus Christ for us sinners and that therefore he's powerful to save us from our sins. And he demonstrates this faithfulness every single day to us. Didn't we just pray a little bit ago? Give us this day our daily bread. Just like in the wilderness when God provided the, the bread, the manna from heaven, one day at a time, and God even told them, you don't need to hoard it, you don't need to, to hide multiple days of bread because, I'm not gonna, because you think I'm not going to give it to you. No, it's one day at a time I'm going to provide for you. And we pray, give us this day our daily bread. We, sh- we see and we acknowledge in our prayers the faithfulness of of God. He demonstrates to us his faithfulness still uh, to us in this age. So many generations, thousands of years after Father Abraham, but he still tells us all about his word that he's going to uphold us by his word. By his word. As Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's that word that is like a seed the apostles say, like a seed that God has planted into our hearts. Or it's like, it's like milk that gives to us as little infants. It gives us nourishment. Or it's like a honey from a rock that is sweet to our taste. Or it's like food to give us nourishment and to give us strength and to help us mature and to grow. God is faithful to us as we hear his promises. We read them. We, we meditate upon them. We preach them. We hear them. He's faithful to uphold them. He shows us his faithfulness in the sacraments of baptism and communion. He shows to us that he washes away our sins, that just like the Israelites passed through water, so too we go through water and we are saved. He shows us in communion, he shows us that just as surely as we hold in our hands and taste in our lips this bread and wine this morning, that, that he's faithful to us, that Christ died for us. He shows us his faithfulness and and how we encourage each other and we, we fellowship with each other. We, we bear each other's burdens. We pray for one another. He shows us his faithfulness through each other. 
And so here's Father Abraham dying, but it dying in faith. And so God is calling us. He calls us to follow in his footsteps by trusting in him. Rely on him, brothers and sisters. Rely on this great God. Go to him in your troubles. Rely on him for his faithfulness, which is new every morning. Seek him in your needs. Hand to him your promises. He's the same God to you as he was to Abraham, as he was to Moses. One hymn says it like this, I know that he will, that he surely will carry me through no matter what evil betide. Why should I then care though the tempest may blow if Jesus walks close by my side? It doesn't matter what the struggle is, what the doubt is, what our own faithlessness is. God is faithful because Jesus Christ is right with us. He's with us to the end. He's with us, amongst us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even if we are faithless, doesn't the Bible tell us that he's faithful because he can't deny himself? And so here's one last expression in the life of Father Abraham of God's faithfulness of God's faithfulness, keeping his promises, keeping his word. And finally, we have here one last expression of finality. One last expression of finality. Abraham's end is is his death here, of course. The end of his life is his death. But the end of his pilgrimage on earth means that he also is going to reach his goal, an end goal, or his telos, that final place, that place of finality. Notice in verse 8, there's this interesting Old Testament phrase, this might be a strange figure of speech to us, that that Abraham, we're told there in verse 8, breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man full of years, And he was, quote, gathered to his people. Gathered to his people. Now, what does that mean? He was gathered to his people. He just died. He just died. Well, maybe maybe, maybe that's an idiom of dying. Is that an idiom idiom of death? No, because his death is mentioned to us just previously. Or maybe this is an idiom, this is a figure of speech for being buried in a family burial tomb. Again, no, because his burial is mentioned just after this uh, in the story. What does it mean to be gathered to his people? This is one of the earliest Old Testament phrases that speaks of an afterlife in the Bible. That speaks of an afterlife. Now, the Old Testament, of course, uh, God reveals himself uh, little by little. So we call that progressive revelation. He begins in the, in, in the beginning and he little by little adds some more uh, 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 color to those promises, more detail to those promises. Not just that we've seen in, in Abraham's uh, example, not just that uh, Abraham's going to bless the world, but then he says, well, you're going to bless the world because you're going to have... Uh, that you're going to have a child. And then he eventually says, you're going to have a son. And then he tells him that you're going to have a son uh, in exactly one year from now. And he, 
And he, he, he more and more progressively reveals himself. He does the same thing. The Old Testament is full of shadows and types and figures and strange things. And little by little, those things begin to be more clear as we approach the New Testament. And voila, there they are. No longer types and shadows, but reality and light. He was gathered to his fathers. That means that he was taken into the presence of all the faithful before him, into the presence of the Savior. You see that on the outline, John 8, 56. What does that verse tell us? Jesus told the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Was that just that he rejoiced while he lived and then he died and he was buried and that was the end? And No, he rejoiced to see my day. Not just in his death, but in, in not just in his life, but in eternal life. Rejoicing to see that day come. There would be no people to be gathered to unless they embraced the Savior, unless they were in the Savior's presence. The God who had made them, the God who created their bodies and breathed in the breath of life. Our bodies go dust to dust, ash to ash. Our souls return to the God who made them. Hebrews 11 tells us, speaking of all the ancient fathers and mothers, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Notice that God promised Abraham the land and all, the, all, those, all those promises. But they desired, Abraham and all the faithful, desired a better country. That is, Hebrews 11 tells us, a heavenly one. A heavenly one. We've seen from Abraham's story so far that God gave him an earthly promise, but yet that earthly promise was always meant to be a type and a picture of something greater, something more. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city to dwell in God's presence with the fathers. This is an Old Testament figure of speech, again, speaking of eternal life. It's equivalent to what we read in the New Testament, that those who die are asleep in Jesus. That we fall asleep in him, that when we die... Our bodies look like they are asleep, but it's a nice way of saying we've gone to be with the Lord. In death, we find life. We are gathered to Jesus and all the faithful. And so as we come to the end of Abraham's life and look forward to seeing the wonderful story of Isaac and then eventually Jacob and finally Joseph, we're called to walk this morning. God calls you and he calls me to walk in the faith of Father Abraham from the beginning to the end of our lives, to believe the promises of God, to follow in his footsteps. Again, as I like to tell you, and as I just mentioned a few moments ago uh, to the kids, our faith is only as good as the thing it's placed in, which is Jesus. This is not just a call to nebulous faith. No, we are called to have faith in Jesus Christ. Like Abraham rejoiced, he looked forward to the day of Jesus Christ, and he was glad. 
in the same way we are called to follow that faith, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Our faith must rest in the faithfulness of Jesus. Our faith must rest in the faithfulness of Jesus, or else our faith will never be at rest. As we sang, man's work faileth, Christ's availeth. If we don't place faith in Jesus, we will live a restless life. Because our works will never be enough. And even our faith in whatever it is that we say that we have faith in or faith about, that is not going to be enough. We're called to put our faith in Jesus this morning, in his faithfulness, to rest secure in Jesus' faithfulness, who lived in your shoes, who died in your place, who was raised for sinners just like you, so that you might know God rightly. Already in this life, but also when the Lord calls us home, our earthly end, the end of our earthly pilgrimage, the Lord promises us everlasting life forever and ever in his presence. Trust in Jesus today. Trust in Jesus today. This story is only one story of the faithfulness of God throughout, throughout human history, and it's all found in Jesus Christ. God has shown to the world his faithfulness in sending and raising his son. There's no greater demonstration than the resurrection, that great event that Abraham's faith looked toward, and that's the reason which our, uh, for which our faith has meaning and substance, because the tomb is empty. Let's pray. Our great and our gracious God, we thank and we bless you for the life of our forefather Abraham, that he persevered in faith, that you preserved him by your faithfulness uh, to the end of his earthly pilgrimage. Gathered, Lord, in your presence with all those who had gone before him, trusting in you. And so, Lord, we long for that presence as well. We have a foretaste of it here now, Lord, by faith, but yet one day by sight. Help us, Lord, in that in-between space as we hear your word this morning, as we receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, may these be the means that communicate to us your faithfulness and your love and that call to us, Lord, to put faith in you. And so we ask that you would help us today. Help us to put a wholehearted faith in Jesus, the same yesterday, today, forever whose promises always come true, and Lord, whose word never fails. And so, Lord, help us to follow in these footsteps of our father Abraham and to do so today and to the end of our life. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's turn together in our songbooks and sing... Uh, sing out uh, number 443, 443, come unto me, ye weary.